Welcome to Booked, where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, this week, two episodes um, from a reading that we hosted at City Lit Books. Um, so big thanks to Brandon Teets, who invited us to uh, to help with the hosting um, duties, which, God, it's so easy just to host stuff, isn't it? We should do this all the time. Yeah, definitely a lot more uh, laid back, but I still feel like we did some work. Yeah, we did. I mean, we showed up there. Made fun of some people. Yeah, I helped put some chairs away. I mean, you know, yeah. read so. some bios, <laughs> which Jetted. means we don't. Which means we don't have to do it now. Isn't that nice? Like with yeah. future prep, like that was already done. It was done. We could actually put this episode up with like two minutes of you and I talking. Yeah, high five that's past us. What's that? High five to the past us, past versions yes, of us. High five. Yep, yep, yep. So um, here's what you're going to, well, I guess we should give people an overview. This is all four of the readers you'll be hearing. You'll only be hearing these first two this evening. Um, we have Jack Gems, which we've been pronouncing wrong for several weeks now. Yeah. We have Richard Thomas, which we have not been pronouncing wrong. Right. Can we tell people that for a while Richard Thomas was our Gmail password? <laughs> and that even that got hacked? <laughs> Some genius got broke through the... Uh the super difficult uh, password of Richard Thomas's name. Yep. So, and then on the next episode, you'll be hearing from Ben Tanzer and Brandon Teets, who very excitingly will be reading from a book that we reviewed and a story from a book we reviewed as well. That's right. So a lot of content. We're breaking it up into two episodes just so you don't have like a two hour long episode. We like to kind of parcel it out for, for um, you lightweights. Um, But there's a lot of good stuff. And a lot of very little work for us, which makes me happy. Yep. So, without further ado, here are some introductions. And then the first reader you'll be hearing is Jack Gems. Oh, actually, uh, oh. yeah, the, the, before the actual reading gets going, um, the owner of City Lit Books, uh, Ter- I think, was her name Teresa? Yeah. She, yeah. she has a little bit to say about the. We, we asked her to, we made sure to ask her to, to come up and, and, talk a little bit about the store because they were nice enough to host us so she came yeah, up and can we can we talk about that for a second before we get going <laughs> on this? i'm glad you brought that up all right so um i'm gonna try not to talk too long on this but you guys know me a, a adam Otten, or triple a as he's known around here who's become a very very regular and great contributor to this show um couldn't make it out because I, I guess he's under house arrest or something because he can't ever seem to an event <laughs> he, once yeah. nearby, but well, whatever the reason it doesn't matter he's catfishing matter. us he's yeah. like some like 70 year old woman or something yeah i mean you and i don't spend a lot of time in person together but we still manage to do this podcast yeah. at any rate he couldn't make it out so after the reading we all go out to dinner and stuff and as the night's wrapping up and i'm ready to walk back to my car with richard thomas and kevin helmick or i'm sorry to richard's car um i get this weird email from him that says did you get a delivery <laughs> i go i don't know what the hell this guy's talking about man i go rob rob can you figure this out take care of this right yeah. so the next morning i wake up to an email I'm just going to read the email. It says, I'm not sure if the Boys Town Motorcycle Club delivered it or not, but I sent you guys a pie of the unchowed variety. It was meant to be delivered on Saturday, but 1-800-Flowers screwed up and sent it a day early. Apparently some thieving bitch at City Lit signed <laughs> I forgot he said that. Teresa has your pie. Visual evidence attached. And God damn it. This fucking guy, Adam, by the way, you're awesome. I don't think anyone's ever, ever sent me a pie. Has anyone ever sent you a pie? Rob? No one's ever sent me anything. All right. Like sweet. Yeah, exactly. So he attaches a screenshot of this this 
fucking pie looks amazing. It's an it's an Oreo, and and I don't know if you got this or not. It's black and white. It's, it's the book. Like he put some thought in. Oh, it. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. Oh, that's so sweet. With this gift message, says apologies for my absence. I hope this unchowed pie makes for a filling fill and don't delay. Eat today, JG Bookderman. Which is pretty much the most thoughtful thing anybody's ever done for us. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, without. I mean, yeah, most people hate me. So outside I mean, of just fucking showing up. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, I guess there's that. And then he attaches the tracking detail, which says it was delivered on Friday the fifth, which is the day before the reading at twelve fifteen p.m. Right, right around lunchtime. Right around when someone's like, you know, it'd be really good right now. A pie. Some goddamn pie. A whole pie. And it's signed for by Teresa, which just happens to be the name of the owner of the bookstore. Now, I mean, to be fair, maybe she just forgot to give it to us. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's possible. You know what else occurred to me? What? It's also possible that maybe, because it was addressed to book podcast. Now, if something showed up at your house, well, at your house probably be a little different. Someone showed up at, at, at the local Walmart saying to book podcast. Someone would be like, I don't know what the hell this is, but this pie looks delicious. Maybe she had no idea who we were. But then I saw that one of the readers posted a picture the day after, like, oh, great reading we had last night, whatever, that had a poster from their window that said, Book Podcast presents this reading. That's true. That, all right, well. So I want my goddamn pie. I mean, it could be in the fridge at City Lit, for all we know. Yeah, yeah. can you swing by there? Because it's like an hour and a half away from me. Can you swing by there and see if there's any pie and then, you know, send it to me? Half of it, my half, the black half. You really want to... Your black, you would be the black man, black man. Yeah, it's like my little heart, dude. Seriously, our pie. Like there was pie. So here's all the. Someone sent us a pie, and somebody else deprived us of it. I don't really care about the pie because I can go buy a pie. But you know, you care about. Be honest, you care about the pie. Well, I care about the pie too, but I care that AAA was nice enough to send. I hope he files a claim with with one eight hundred flowers or or whatever, which is a really weird place to order pies. <laughs> I think. All right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna I'm gonna take the high road on this one, and I'm gonna assume that they intended us to give the pie they, that they intended to give us the pie, but something somewhere fell through the cracks. Yeah, you go ahead and take the high road. I'll take the road that I always take, and just sit here and be really bitter while I listen to her announce this reading. <laughs> Wait, did you just hear that noise? That was the sound of someone going on your dead to me list. <laughs> Exactly. So, without further ado, here's Teresa from City Lit Books. So, good evening, everyone. Welcome to City Lit Books. We're thrilled to be hosting you all tonight. Um, we have fantastic authors. Um, for those of you who don't know, we're an um, in independent bookstore here in Logan Square. We've been open just two years and have uh, kind of grown with incredible community support and certainly appreciate all of your support here tonight. So, with that, uh, <laughs> All right, well, welcome. Um, this whole reading started out uh, not too long ago. Brandon Teets hit us up and he said he was putting together something in Chicago and he was looking for the guys to introduce everybody. So we basically responded to his message and said, like, this is as low, you know, responsibility as possible, right? He <laughs> said, yeah, and we're like, yeah, we're in. So um, we are the co-host of the book podcast, and I think Livius will tell you a little bit about that. Award-winning. Award-winning award -winning winning. book podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Um, yeah, we've been doing booked for uh, 
three years now. 217, 18. 18 episodes. Rob does all the hard work. I just have to show up once a week. So um, we do book reviews, author interviews, general commentary on writing and reading and everything else. Richard, pay attention. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just talking about you guys. <laughs> so, um, um, we will scold the audience. Yeah, exactly. So um, any rate, um, we've been doing that for a while, and that's how we got to know Brandon, and there's Kevin Lynn Helmick up front, Richard Thomas, and we get to know lots and lots of people doing this. So it's an honor to be asked to do this, and it's an honor to do it here in such a fine um, bookstore. Usually we're welcome at bars, brothels, um, people's Places homes occasionally, yeah, but not in nice neighborhoods. Um, and uh, so it's great to do this. So without further ado, I think we should just announce the first reader. Is that... That we're doing? That we're well, just a little bit about the format. So we have four readers tonight. We're going to do two, and then we're going to do a little break, give you time to buy some, books, put some money into this fine okay. establishment, and then we're going to come back and do two more. And we're trying to get Richard Thomas out of the way as quickly as possible. So. <laughs> but he's not going to start out the evening. The, to start things out is going to be Jack Gems. And we have a little bit of bio that Livius is going to read for you. That's right. Jack Jem's collection of stories. A different bet every time is newly out from Dezang Books. Her novel, My Only Wife, was named a finalist for the 2013 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction and winner of the Paula Anderson Book Award. She is also the author of a chapbook of stories, These Strangers She'd Invite In. Sorry, my printer is not working really well this morning. Uh, from Grain, Gro Grain Ghost Press. She is the poetry editor at Decomp and web nonfiction editor for Hobart. Right, let's yeah, yeah. Thank you. So glad to be here with you all. I'm going to read uh, a book. Uh, a book. I'm going to read the whole book to you. <laughs> Get comfortable. Um, I'm going to read a story from the new book, which I actually lied is uh, not quite out. It'll be out October 14th. But um, but uh, this story is called The Wrong Sister. Okay, say the reason you're stuck here in limbo is totally unclear to you. Say you were a woman who cared about little but treated others basically well. Say you had a twin who was married to a doctor but because you were so ambivalent, you never agreed to partner up, never liked anyone enough to commit or even give someone a real chance to ever approach the situation where you might have to explain these feelings to another human being because you've joined to have and to hold in sickness and in blah blah blah. But every once in a while, because it seems harmless, and because sometimes your sister needs a break, and because you gave up on that theater degree long ago, but missed the thrill of lying, of being genuinely dishonest, let's say every year or two, you relieve your sister. And unbeknownst to her husband, you replace her for a week or two tops. Your sister's husband is the most crass and unpolished doctor you've ever met. He's a rube with a medical degree. You don't even recall the branch of medicine, so uninvolved and detached are your interactions, even when you're pretending to be his wife. Somehow this man is actually a really good doctor, top of his field, full of expertise. You live in a big city, in a small neighborhood, when you're playing his wifey. When you're you, you live on the other side of town. No one really knows you. The grocery store clerk might recognize you if you smiled at her once in a while, but as earlier stated, you're a bit heartless, so you haven't. Most people who see you assume you're your sister on a bad day. Let's say your sister comes to you and tells you her husband's really in a mood lately, and though she still loves him, to be around him right now is to tear her hair out. Please, she says, be me. 
You shrug. Agree to it. Let her know what's going on at work. Switch cell phones. Squeeze into those pony-toed shoes she thinks are chic. Erase yourself into her. Drive in her car to her house and get ready for a week off. Cook some lobsters for dinner. Listen to their screams without interest. Smile at the rooftop garden, at her husband's color-coded tie rack, at that godforsaken dog confined to the laundry room. When her husband gets home, you know what she means immediately. He's acting up. His eyes clock around, avoiding your face, landing on it every quarter hour and ticking away. His facial hair seems mangy and patchy, like he's been letting the razor slide around willy-nilly. He unloads groceries and you're surprised he's done shopping and you're surprised he's done the shopping. This doesn't seem like him, but when you see that it's nothing to be floored by, ten pounds of center cut ribeye, two hundred massive garbage bags, straws, beef jerky, a box of donuts, you look at him and in your best impersonation of your sister you say, What the hell is all this? He grabs the bundle of zip ties from you and replies curtly that it's stuff he needed from the store that you, your sister, had not gotten for him. You pluck the lobster from the warmer and say, dinner, mon cher, is served. He plops himself down and before you have properly buttered your meal, he's inhaled his and is heading towards the garage. You're welcome, you call, and his response is an insouciant fuck you. You know what's going to happen before it does, and you don't do anything to stop it. He's down in the garage with his supplies, defining the margins of his sanity. He's making illegible decisions and convincing himself he'll decipher the handwriting later. Here is your sister's husband, your husband, for the sake of the rest of the story, and he's planning her demise, your demise, accordingly. And you know it'll be complicated for your sister when all of this unravels, that there are no children involved, so you say, what the hell? You wonder about your sister's blaming, blaming herself, that figure she'd rather feel guilty than dead. You, however, are ambivalent. Here's what will happen. Your husband will come upstairs and apologize. He'll ask if you want to go get a drink. He's had a wretched week. You'll say, where? He'll say, how about we just head around the corner to raise? You'll say, sure, and head for the garage. He'll rush after you, pull your arm, suggest you just walk. The car's been acting funny. You can imagine what, he, what he's got laid out in preparation in the garage already. Trash bags, cutting tools. If he's smart, some lie. God love this man and his nutty streaks. He has no idea anyone is on to him, least of all his victim. You think how foolish he is to do it in the garage. The concrete will strip stain. But it's not your problem. You think of calling your sister and saying something cryptic that might ease her guilt after the fact, but decide it might be too fishy. You want her free and clear of this nut job ASAP. Birds glide beneath your skin. For a moment, you think, who's the nut now? You're convinced this joker is going to kill you tonight. What? Suddenly you're clairvoyant? But you know too well. He has that calm about him, where he's sure of himself, and he doesn't need to do any convincing. He just needs to let the story unravel. The birds keep chirping, but you're still convinced you cannot get enough, get gone enough. He's sure this will solve all his problems, but you know this gesture will be will be read like a wasteland. It doesn't matter what's been or what will be, tenses have been paved over. Say you walk to raise, you sneak to the bathroom, you examine your face in the mirror. You're pretty sure you don't believe in an afterlife, but in the event there is such a thing, who knows if you'll be able to see anything, much less your own face. You look at the blue flame tinted circles beneath your eyes, Think of the, all the deaths you've avoided, the canoe trip in the storm, the mugging, that time your appendix jammed itself huge into the rest of you, 
all incongruous warnings for the decision you're making right now. You look a little longer. No, you're not getting sentimental, but you want to make sure there's enough time for the sedative to dissolve in your drink. You don't want to wake too early to a gray foggy cloud of your own bright scarlet. You don't want to see the brownish tint of you as the yellow pages sop up your gore. You emerge and the bartender gives you a look like he has a secret he knows he should tell you, but you look away quickly so he doesn't feel implicated. The whiskey barks down your throat all familiar-like, but husband is all fanned eyebrows and tilted breath. You gulp the drink down and smile at husband and bring his hand to your mouth for a kiss. It is sweaty, but you make nothing of it. The rest is blurry. You get loopy and other patrons notice. Husband takes you home. He butchers your somnolent self like a fine-boned rabbit. He flushes 14 pounds of you down the toilet. He files a missing persons report and your sister grows confused. They never find the rest of you. Stories start coming out around the neighborhood. Large purchases of rubber gloves, trash bags, knives, and saws. A regular at Ray's says he saw the two of you there and tells how you'd gotten wiped out with one glass of whiskey. Husband's office reports missing quantities of sedation samples. The police find the wad of your muscle and fat in the septic tank, but your husband's lawyer argues a person could survive the loss of this much flesh. He charms the grand jury into thinking the evidence is inconclusive. Turns out it doesn't matter if people recognize you buying the damning supplies. Husband remains a practicing physician in the free world. Your sister can see what happened, and as soon as the trial is over, she runs as far as possible to start a new life. After a day, about a day after you're chopped to bits, you wake up in some mental state at Ray's, bodiless. This must be the ghost life, you think, but you never cared about anything. What could you have to settle? And here? Say this boredom is eternal. Well, then you think half-heartedly. All these men are stuck smoking with the wrong sister. Thanks. That was a nice little happy start to the movie. Thank you very much. Um, that was Jack Gems, uh, whose book will be coming out apparently in October. Um, or it was a very cleverly disguised twin sister. We're not really sure. <laughs> All right, so the next person we're going to have reading is Richard Thomas. And we have a bit of a history with Richard Thomas. The first time he fell on my radar was, believe it or not, like four maybe years ago. Olivia sent me a message. He said, yeah, there's this local guy who's doing like a class on some sort of like writing or something like that, and I'm going to take it. And I was like, all right, yeah, cool, sounds good. Three years, four years later, we're like hanging out with Richard all the time, going to readings and, you know, publishing him in our book, the book anthology. So uh, we've had a long time where we've spent, uh, hung out with Richard, published him, had him on our podcast and everything, and uh, um, that's why we give him the amount of crap that we give him. But really, he's an excellent guy, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And if you are a writer, one of the biggest advocate for independent writers you'll ever find. Um, so yeah, we got a little bio for him. All right, Richard Thomas is sitting right there. He's the author of six books, one of them that's not out yet. I'm not getting tricked twice on this. <laughs> Disintegration, The Breaker, Transubstantiate, Herniated Roots, Staring Into the Abyss, and The Soul Standard. His over 100 stories in print include Cemetery Dance, Pank, Gargoyle, Weird Fiction Review, and Midwestern Gothic. He is also the editor of three anthologies out in 2014, The New Black, which is available here today for you to purchase. Um, the lineup, uh, 25 provocative women writers, 
and Bird Tongues, which is not the same thing. Bird Tongues <laughs> is a totally separate book, um, which he co-edited with Chuck Palahniuk. Without further ado, Richard Thomas. Thank you guys, I appreciate that. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I also appreciate that. Um, I should say that Jack is actually in that anthology lineup. She has a story in there. Um, and Brandon is in Burt Tongues. So, uh, Ben, I'm sorry I didn't get you into something, but uh, maybe next time around. I'm feeling very lifted. <laughs> if you want, we could just start one tonight. We probably got enough writers in the room. We could just uh, put one together right now. <laughs> um, so tonight I'm going to read two short stories because uh, they're both relatively short. You know, the first one's almost, uh, almost, uh, second one's almost flash fiction. So it won't be too long. Um, I promised people that I would read one story that is unpublished. And then I wanted to read another one, uh, Asking for Forgiveness, which was published recently at Medicine Hedge. But it's, it's something I really like. It's kind of a, a dense little dark story. So I'll read that one in a second. But I will start off with an original story called Little Red Wagon, which is not published yet. And you're hearing for the first time here. And I hope you enjoy it. <clears throat> Rebecca hated her father for what he'd done, refusing to help him dig the grave, arms crossed, tears running down her face, the body under the tarp, no longer grandpa. No more secret conversations when they were alone, just the two of them now. Her father the killer, her father and his constant worries, her father convinced that the old man had finally fallen sick. They'd been alone for a long time now, the three of them living off the land, the radio antenna built up tall in the backyard, stretching up into the sky. Nobody ever answered, but she sat in the kitchen, turning the knobs, trying to find a sign of life anyway. The black box sat on the table, static and interference crackling from the device, a puddle of blood on the floor where her grandfather had fallen, the hammer that killed him still lying there like a sleeping snake. Sitting next to her, the thick black lab nuzzled her hand, whimpering. Sadie was upset. She didn't know what to do, and neither did Rebecca. She was a teenager now, but inside she was still a child, a baby, and she felt helpless. One percent, that's what Grandpa had said, only one percent had survived. This had been several years ago when one percent meant something. He'd tug on his long gray beard and stare at the television set as the man the news rattled on, updates so infrequent, most of the population dead and gone now. Around them the world had simply gone silent, no cars driving by, no planes overhead, with the farm still functioning, but just barely. Their pantry was filled with canned goods that had been easy to drive around their small town and fill up the bed of their pickup truck with more. In the beginning, the stench had been unbearable, meat going bad, bodies lying everywhere, but over time, the animals and elements picked up the bones, leaving little behind but broken white skeletons. One percent had turned into another one percent, and that's when it all went quiet, went dark. The second wave erupted, the mutation, Airborne or dormant, nobody knew, and then no more frantic man on the television set, hair sticking out in all directions, shouting at the camera. No, there was nothing more after that. Grandfather talked about keeping the race alive, that they had to find a female, a woman. That was why he had the radio going, why he built the tower, why they constantly scrolled up and down the dial looking for any survivors. He was a handyman, Grandpa, able to build most anything out in the barn with his tools, his charts, his years of engineering so helpful now that the world had moved on. A stack of books sat by his leather recliner, biomechanics, computer programming, artificial intelligence, bionics. What's your earliest memory, Grandpa asked her. What do you mean? Think back, he said, easing into the recliner. What do you remember? The very first thing you can think of. 
Rebecca sat on the couch and pulled her long brown hair behind her head and into a ponytail, and something she did when she was concentrating. Anything, he nudged, his hands together in a steeple pressed to his lips. I remember a little red wagon, Rebecca said, and he nodded, and inside it are a bunch of puppies, little black bundles of fur. Was that here on the farm, she asked. Grandpa didn't answer, merely raised his eyebrows and pursed his lips. They'd been born on the farm, and I was taking them down to the end of the driveway. There were six of them. We were going to give them away. He told me I could keep the last one, but only the last one. That must have been Sadie. What's two times four, Rebecca? Four, silly. What's four times four? Sixteen. Twelve times twelve? One hundred and forty-four. Grandpa paused, looking at her as Rebecca focused in on him, her eyes shifting, the pupils getting smaller, then larger, then smaller again. One hundred and forty-four times one hundred and forty-four. Twenty thousand seven hundred and thirty-six. Good girl, he said. Rebecca stood in the kitchen watching her father dig the grave out beyond the apple trees, the shovel piercing the dirt over and over again. She loved her grandfather, even when he wanted to examine her. He said it was important, their little secret. And this is what her father had yelled at her about as he stood over her grandfather's body. But he was wrong, so very wrong. After the world went silent, after they'd filled the pantry with canned goods and planted a new harvest, made sure the pigs still had their slop, their chickens clucking at their feet, all they had was each other. The well wouldn't run dry, Grandpa assured them. They had water and food and solar panels lining the roof as well as the barn, the windmills spinning or always spinning at the back of their 20 acres down by the creek. Grandpa said he saw it coming. It was only a matter of time. He said a lot of things when she was lying on the cold metal table out in the faded red barn. In the beginning, she thought it was just part of her education. No school anymore, so Grandpa would toss out math questions, give her writing assignments, talk to her about history and even human anatomy. It used to be exams at the kitchen table, stethoscope on her bony chest where breasts refused to grow. Seemed she'd always been 12 years old. He'd look in her eyes and make noises, humming to himself, muttering, okay, and yes, and just fine. As he looked in her nose, checked out her sinuses, made, made her stick her tongue out. He didn't start taking her out to the barn until her incident with the fingers. She came to him as he sat in the recliner, a book in his lap. Father was nowhere to be found. And if Rebecca had probed her memories, she'd find that to be very accurate at first. She was pale as a sheet, sweat running down her face, the fingers on her right hand bent backward and sideways at a strange angle. No blood, merely broken fingers, bent fingers. Grandpa, she said, Grandpa, help me. Help me. Something's wrong. He leaped up out of his seat, the book falling to the floor. Sadie standing up, always the same weight, always black, her muzzle never getting gray, barking at the sudden movement in Rebecca's panicked voice. It's okay, sweetie, he said, rushing to her, as she stared down at her mangled hand, holding it gingerly, but feeling no pain, sick to her stomach, and yet no blood gushed forth. He put his hands on her shoulders. It's okay, I can fix it. I can splint it, he said. She felt his hands on her neck, her shoulders pressing down as if searching for something, and then she fainted. When she woke up, her right hand was in a cast. It's okay, honey, her grandfather said. It wasn't nearly as bad as she thought. A few fingers were merely jammed, too broken, but I set them right. You should be okay. Any pain, he asked. Rebecca shook her head. There was no pain, none at all. She sat up on the cold metal table and looked around the barn. Sadie jumped up and placed her front paws on the metal table, licking Rebecca's bare leg. And then her father was around more. Suddenly he was a dominant presence on the farm, always keeping an eye on her, chopping wood, feeding the chickens, no longer the ghost of rumor or rumor that it used to be. Used to be, she'd think. She searched her memory for her father and saw him driving away in a beige sedan. A salesman, she thought, the letters popping up in her head like a neon sign. Then she saw him with a briefcase walking in the front door. She saw him place airline tickets on the kitchen table and pour himself a cup of coffee. Yes, she saw her father well.
After the accident, she would meet Grandpa in the barn on a monthly basis, but only when her father was out cutting the grass or running the thresher. Her grandfather said it was because he had to examine her and make sure everything was working right, and that it was okay for a doctor, for him now, but not in front of her father. He wouldn't understand. It always made her sleepy lying on the table. He poked and prodded, mostly by her head, always studying her eyes, what he called optics. When he muttered to himself, he was gentle, always gentle, and by the time his hands were on her shoulders, her head, she'd fallen asleep. The question certainly didn't make Rebecca's father feel included, the way she and Grandpa would talk in the living room, math and science, complex equations and theorems, always going quiet when her father came into the room. They would laugh and say that he had plenty of education already. Go milk the cows, they'd chuckle. Go toss some hay around. And they'd both make muscles, flex them, and her father would scowl and leave the room. He never had a good sense of humor. Her father was a quiet man, a big guy, strong and silent, a bit of a worker bee, she used to think to herself. Grandpa would say that he was so grateful her father was around more, now that he was getting old, and she could see it in his eyes. His hair and beard brought him more white every day, the way his skin wrinkled and the spots by his wrists. She worried about him, but it gave Rebecca comfort to see her father outside in the yard, splitting timber, lugging buckets of water or slop, <coughs> bales of hay tossed around as if they were nothing, a downed tree cut and cut and split, only the trunk left, a chain attached, a tractor pulling it, and then his massive arms wrapping around the roots, pulling it out and lifting it up as if it were made of paper. All it took was one time, one instance of her walking out of the barn, buttoning up her blouse, and her father's scowl turned into rage. She heard them yelling, Grandpa assuring him it was science. There were no doctors now. He was the only mind they had, that he was just making sure Rebecca was healthy. Her father wasn't very trusting, almost simple at times. She'd seen him cry over a dead rabbit that had been gutted by a fox holding the creature in his lap, rocking back and forth, so distraught. It had upset Rebecca, not the dead rabbit. It was just nature, after all. But him, he had upset her, his reaction. No emotion, never laughing, never joking, never singing or dancing when Grandpa put on some music, but this, crying over the rabbit, it made no sense to her. So she stood in the kitchen and watched her father bury the old man, Sadie licking her hand. She was suddenly tired, her batteries run down, and so she went to her bedroom and lay down on the floral sheet, staring out the window at the setting sun, orange turning to red, so tired, so sad. Maybe Grandpa had been sick after all. One percent of one percent of one percent. She closed her eyes and replayed the scene at the kitchen table, her Grandpa holding her hand, trying to explain something to her, what was out in the barn, frozen and kept for a reason. He spoke about her as if she were two entirely separate people, and he spoke of her father the same way. He talked about her mother, and when he said the word mother, a jolt went through Rebecca, a wave of confusion crashing in her head, and where there should have been memories, nothing. He said he'd fix everything in time, but he was getting old. He needed help. The work he'd done wouldn't last forever. The radio signal must be stronger. He spoke of amplifiers and how they might have to travel, all the while holding her hand, and yet all she could do was stare at him. Mother. It didn't add up. It didn't compute. Why had she never asked about her mother? And why was there nothing to cling to, no memory? Her father had walked in and stood by the door, his face an eternal frown. The day after her grandfather had talked to her in earnest, trying to explain that they were running out of time, she lay in bed not wanting to get up, a candle burning on her desk, vanilla and sandalwood drifting to the ceiling. Images of her mother came rushing back to her, hanging laundry on a line outside, her auburn tresses flowing in the wind, her mother with an apron full of eggs coming from the chicken coop, her mother singing a lullaby as she poured water over Rebecca's head in the bath, smiling as she did it. In time, her grandfather had said, standing in the doorway, give me time. I'll make it all whole again, I promise. But now he was gone. Rebecca felt weak, unable to rise. On the floor by her bed, Sadie slept, hardly moving at all. 
Rebecca could feel the great shadow of her father in the doorway, standing there, silent. Dad, Rebecca asked, tears in her eyes. Dad, come here. The big man lumbered over, Sadie not even raising her head. Tell me about my mother. I can hardly picture her. What happened? Where did she go? He sighed and placed his hand over hers. I don't know, honey. What do you mean, she said. I don't remember. Rebecca stared at him as she felt the energy draining out of her body. What do you remember, she asked. Her father sat there, arms heavy, his head hanging, a slow whirring sound filling the air, his frame suddenly growing weak, the room dark and quiet. What's the first thing you remember? Go back as far as you can. What's your first memory, Rebecca asked. Her father stared at the floor, the, the gears turning, trying to think back to remember something from his childhood. He held her hand, no longer warm, cool to the touch. I remember a little red wagon, he said, and she nodded. And inside it are a bunch of puppies, little black bundles of fur. Rebecca closed her eyes, two tears slipping out, as her chest moved up and down slowly, and then, not at all. They'd been born on the farm, and I was taking them down to the end of the driveway. There were six of them, and we were going to give them away. Somebody told me I could keep the last one, but only the last one. Who was that? He asked the room. But there was no response. He remained silent. He held his daughter's hand, now cold, the black lab at his feet not stirring, the house around him closing in, the silence deafening. What have I done, he asked. Sorry, it always gets to me a little bit. I have uh, a boy and a girl, so I sometimes, you know, make me a little sad my own writing. <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> here's the second one. This is asking for forgiveness. It's a little shorter. Um, thank you for your patience. We stand at the edge of the ancient forest, yellow blurry eyes weeping with sickness. As a cool breeze pushes through the leaves, the light flickering in the cabin as the day starts to slip away. We are more than we were last month, double what was birthed last year, and none of us remember being upright. We stand on all four now, as if this was how we were made. We watch the boy fill his bucket with sand, and then empty it, and then fill it again, sitting there with his short blonde hair and overalls, smacking his lips as we smack our warped mouths open and shut, not a care in the world, the lad. Acres of dead land stretching out in every direction, her eyes on him from the kitchen, our eyes on him from the drifting shade. <clears throat> lips cracking as our feeded grins widen, the teeth come out. Sour saliva spilling onto the dirt path, our gangly limbs shaking, sores mottled with flies and squirming maggots, waiting for the right time to claim him as our own. <laughs> the sun is descending, the moon, slow, the moon slow to rise, and the boy still plays in the box, no sign of the change yet. A cough from him, and he stands up slowly, thumb in his mouth, rubbing at his eyes with tiny fists, falling back down and then gradually tipping over. The screen door creaks open as she wipes her long, slender fingers on the stained, faded apron, a stray strand of yellow hair tucked back as she steps outside, slow to approach him, humming something under her breath, hoping the boy is tired, not shifting, hoping that the movement she sees in the encroaching woods is nothing more than the fluttering wind, her sigh in unison, the boy merely asleep. We murmur mother, but her gaze only touches the edge of the yard before darting away. We must bide our time now, we were too early it seems, so we retreat to the cave where one by one she brought us, hand in hand, down a long winding path, thorny branches reaching out, nipping at our bare mottled flesh. 
For each of us it was a secret, something she whispered to us in the middle of the night, her vanilla lavender lips on our foreheads, her promises and apologies falling on deaf, damaged ears. She was our mother, and we were her children. We trusted her when we were submerged in the bath, soap bubbles and laughter, pushing our heads under, but then lifting us back up. Her tears were tears of joy, we thought. She always brought us back up into the light, up out of the water. She never kept us under. Perhaps those hesitations, those extra seconds, went unnoticed. On the night when the moon filled the sky and the windows leaked light, she would open the creaking door and slip away for hours on end. But what were we to think? She always had something to do. Water from the well, fruit from the bent apple tree, down on her knees in the garden, pulling and grunting, basket over one arm, basket over the other, knife in the kitchen, slicing, boiling water, oil heating, a slip here and there, a gasp and a red trickle, but these are the ways of the land. Nothing here was foreign. The berries on the other side of the hill, sometimes strawberries, sometimes blue. Her hair filled with twigs, the scratches up and down her arms, most definitely from thorns, not him. The clothes drying on the line, her delicates, never dotted with blood. It must be the berries, we told ourselves. What did we know? We were babies then, still babies now. In the cave, we snap at each other and then huddle in the middle, pressed up against each other for warmth, for companionship out of habit and memory, and we hope for something more. Perhaps tomorrow we will stop the cycle, or perhaps she will bring him here, the coward that she is. Our father was a rumor, an echo, something only to be seen out of the corner of your eye. Our father was a woodsman, arms like tree limbs, beard as if born from bear, disappearing for days, for weeks, returning with so many things. Tiny bird skulls, beads on a string, flowers from mother with purple blossoms and veiny leaves. The wood was stacked along one side of the cabin as high as it could go. The steady chop, the split of the timber, just part of the day or so we were told. Our father was the cold creek that ran south of our home, filled with silver-backed fish with blood-orange meat, whispering every time we neared it, quenching our thirst, promises of sleepy peace if only we'd step a bit closer. Our father was the frosty moon that pasted the land with silence as our breath formed clouds of pain, feet bruised and bleeding, his laughter running over the mountain, guiding us down one ravine and up the other, wandering from hill to valley and back, some elusive destination always out of reach. Our father was time, stretched in every direction, elastic as a rubber band, as slow and anchored as a wall of granite, our eyes closing, waking up sore, gray where black had been. All lies. Everything she had ever told us was a lie. She never loved us, or it wouldn't be like this. In the night there was a flash of silver. Our father returned, and in the morning I stand alone at the edge of the woods. I, hear them cry I heard them crying. I saw him approach, his hand on each one of us, muttering kind words, his voice nearly forgotten, his muscle gripped soothing, then choking, then ripping, the piercing of flesh, and my kin was held down one by one, eyes wide open and yet disbelieving. I too did not move, did not understand. Perhaps she had seen us, feared us, known what we planned to do, the bloodline destined to end by our teeth and claws and squinting eyes. Father would not allow it. He had returned with thunder and lightning and vengeance, a great rain pouring down outside, washing away our sins. I, I alone was spared, the eldest. Alone now, I have lost my way, finding it hard to leave the cave, until the stench grows so foul that I force myself to grab them, one by one, and drag their filthy bodies down the rocky path that spilled to the east, casting them over the edge of the mossy cliff, one by one, not looking down, not taking note, merely laboring on because questions still remained. 
Why me? Why any? With nothing left to do but watch and wait, I would wake when the sun pushed into the cave and stumbled down to the edge of the forest, smoke rising out of the stack, the woodpile never shrinking, something he could do right. And I would stare at her as she opened the creaking door, a bucket of water tossed outside, a sigh and her hands upon her back, bending backwards and moaning, taking a deep breath, swelling up again, the moon reaping its harvest. I wanted to hate her as much as I wanted her praise. Anything, any gesture at all. So hungry I was for even a scrap. Back inside and then out with a basket, laundry on the line, the boy stepping gingerly behind her, walking now, his head on a swivel this way and that, sniffing the air, his hand reaching out for her hem, taller now, a twitch in his shoulders, scanning the land for what I do not know. When she finally brings me the boy, I can see he is not well. This experiment she keeps trying, once again a disaster. He is naked, standing, but beginning to hunch over, his eyes a cream like spoiled milk, his lips distended, teeth pushing around his mouth in crooked horror, his hand in hers as she stands there swelling, tears in her eyes, rubbing her mouth with the back of her hand, speaking my name. I had forgotten my name. Her hand is on my neck, rubbing, patting, petting, as she pleads with me to take care of him, to not grow bitter, to find it in my heart to welcome my brother into the woods, while she tries once again to find a cure. I do not hate her any longer, my mother, my beacon, for the land is empty. My father continues his long walks in every direction, north into the cold, the winter and frost, fingers ruddy and numb, south into the dry heat, vultures, tumbleweeds, and one false oasis after another. She will continue to try in this barren wasteland to be the mother that no one else can be. She will not let us expire this last great race. She will not let it all end with a whimper and a cough, a last gasp and shuddering sickness. She will swim in the water. She will kneel in the moonlight. She will pray to the lost gods and bleed into her solitude. My father standing with his shadow cast out, darkness ever creeping, asking for forgiveness. Thomas, everybody. Another uplifting story to continue the reading. Um. All right, and you just heard the first two readers of our City Lit reading. Uh, Jack Jem's reading uh, The Wrong Sister, which is a short story from her book, A Different Bed Every Time, followed by Richard Thomas reading two stories. The first one, Little Red Wagon, which is currently unpublished, or uh, yet to be published, I guess we should say. And Asking for Forgiveness, which is going to be coming out soon from Menacing Hedge. Do you know why I tripped up a little bit over over um, the soul standard when I was reading his, his bio at the thing? Is it because you were so preoccupied with pie? No, it's because I was pretty sure he was just making things up. And to be fair, <laughs> he wasn't making anything up. The Soul Standard is forthcoming from Dezank and was formerly known as Four Corners, which you and I have been very excited about for a very, very long time. Yeah, but you know I'm pissed off about that book. Why are you pissed off? Because everybody we know has read it, but we haven't. God damn it. Now I'm pissed off at Richard Thomas, too. Huh, that son of a bitch. He could have just given oh. it to us. Oh. And Guy. We know Guy. We got, we know what, we got people on all sides of this. Yeah, that's very true. Jack Gems, I'm not mad at you. You're okay. You're the only person I heard there because I'm constantly mad at Rob, too, and a little mad at myself sometimes. You do seem pretty self-loathing. 
I did. Yeah. Well, I'm not exempt. I hate everyone. That includes me. And your yeah, yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Before we go, um, <laughs> big thanks to AAA for the pie that that never made it to my belly. Um, but um, uh, another thanks because uh, he does uh, he does contribute quite frequently to this podcast. And uh, what we have is a very um, timely contribution. Um, I, I, we weren't going to run this initially um, during the readings because we do tend to keep those pretty pretty straightforward and stuff. But um, he mentions the reading in this, and he mentions some stuff from the last episode. And this actually, goddamn, it had me laughing out loud in my car the other night. So uh, without further ado. Um, here's a little clip from uh, from AAA, A. Adam Otten. Keys, keys, keys. Daddy has to go out for a while. I'll be back later. No, I'm not going out to feed strays. I told you, it's all in the past. I'm going to that book reading at City Lit, featuring such luminary authors as Richard Thomas, Ben Tanzer, Jack Jams, and the man himself, Brandon Teets. What do you mean it was Brandon Teets? You love Brandon Teets. Remember that Sunday we spent in bed reading The Fashion of the Christ together? You commented how you couldn't believe it only cost 99 cents. What? A bargain. Who the hell was that? No, you can't come. Didn't you hear the last episode of the podcast? It was all about dead cats. I don't trust those weirdos around you. Listen, I promise I'll be back soon. I left plenty of wet food, and HBO's running a cat house marathon. How was it exploitative? Those women are... I, I can't have this argument with you right now. I have to go. Hey, no hissing. Remember what the counselor said. Use your words. Oh, come on. Don't walk away mad. Hey, hey, why are you climbing up by the extension cord? We don't want to repeat what happened last Christmas. Why do you think I hung it up there in the first place? Oh, fine. Wrap it around your neck. How very melodramatic of you. Wait, how are you tying those knots? You don't even have opposable thumbs. Whoa! Poe? Poe? Oh god, she actually did it. I didn't think she'd actually do it. Wait, what was Olivia said on the podcast? Pretty sure Adam Martin's been doing stuff with dead cats already. Pretty sure Adam Martin's been doing stuff with dead cats already. Pretty sure Adam Martin's been doing stuff with dead cats already. It was prophecy. <laughs> you have made me fortunate fool. Oh, well, maybe I can get that Danny Lewski book now. All right, that was a... It started out a little bit on the on the bright side, but it ended up kind of depressing side uh, uh, thing from Anna Mott. And what I want to say is um, an interesting twist with the whole dead cats thing where it goes from uh, soliciting pictures of dead cats to driving cats to suicide so that you could then take a picture of them, which is an entirely new twist. But um, it's not surprising that it took the combination of you and Adam Otten to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm okay with it either way it happens. I, I'm not... As long as the cat dies. So long as there's a picture. <laughs> All right, well, that's fair. All right, so <laughs> um, that's going to be it for this first half of our City Lit uh, reading. Um, tune in again tomorrow 
right around this time, whatever time you're listening. Just come back a day later, unless you're listening <laughs> later in the week that you can listen to it right now, where we'll bring you readings from Ben Tanzer and Brandon Teets. Until then, I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. You're still fucking angry about that? I am fucking, dude. That was the, he spent thirty fucking dollars on that. Did he really? Twenty nine ninety nine is what it says on the the receipt. God damn it! That's the, a whatever. The, pie. Yeah. Well, you got to figure. I'm sure twelve, fourteen bucks. Of that's just in delivery. <sighs> All right. You know he's going to send another pie to your work. He doesn't know where I work. He? How could he not? <sighs> I mean, we don't ever have to go back to City Lit Books, right? Like, we don't need them. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to grow a relationship with them. Fuck, they're just going to steal more of our food. I like how you just assume that if we go back, people are going to send us more food. Fuck. Somehow they're related, us going there and them sending food. Yeah. Uh, it'd be nice if, if Auten just sent food to us wherever we went now. <laughs> just, where, just wherever. It's like Tuesday fucking show up at the coffee shop and there's a pizza like livius <laughs> fucking there's a pizza here like a group of bikers riding away 